0: I have Paul Bloom on the line. Paul, thanks for coming back on the podcast.
1: Sam, thanks for having me back.
0: You are now officially my, well, I have, I think, only two return guests, but you have just edged out David Deutsch, who has two appearances, so you are, you're the only third appearance on this podcast, so that, that says something. It's not exactly like a 20th appearance on The Tonight Show, but it, it is a measure of how good a guest
1: you are. I'm touched. Maybe, you know, maybe a decade from now, who knows? We could be doing our 20th anniversary show.
0: Well, after we did our second show, people just emailed me saying, just have Paul on the podcast all the time. You don't need any other guests, so you are a popular guest.
1: Well, we we had a great discussion. I think a little bit about what makes for a good discussion, which is you and I agree on a lot. We have a lot of common ground, but there's enough tension and enough things to rub against that we get some, some good discussion going.
0: We will see if we can steer ourselves in the direction of controversy, perhaps. But you have just released a book, which we talked about to a significant degree, I think, in your first appearance here, and we would be remiss not to talk about it some, so we'll start with that, but people should just know that if they find what we were about to say about empathy intriguing, our first podcast has a full hour or more on it, and it is an incredibly interesting and consequential issue, which we will be giving short shrift here because we've, we've already done it, but The proper intro to this topic is that you have just released a book entitled Against Empathy, which is a, I think I told you at at the time, is a fantastic title. You seem to steer yourself out of a full collision with the outrage of your colleagues in your subtitle. You have, as a subtitle, The Case for Rational Compassion. So you're not against compassion, obviously. Tell us about your position on, on empathy and how it's different from compassion.
1: So the distinction is super important because if you just hear him against empathy, it'd be fair enough to assume I'm some sort of monster, some sort of person arguing for pure selfishness or, you know, uh, uh, entire lack of warmth or caring for others. And that's not what I mean by empathy. And it's actually not what psychologists and philosophers mean by empathy either. What I'm against is uh, putting yourself in other people's shoes, feeling their pain, feeling their suffering. And I'm not even against this in general. I think empathy is a wonderful source of pleasure. It's central to sex, it's central to sports, it's central to the pleasure we get from literature and, and movies and all sorts of fictional entertainments. But what I argue is in the moral realm, when it comes to being good people, it steers us dangerously astray. It's a moral train wreck. And the reason why is that it zooms us in on individuals like a spotlight. And in fact, the fans of empathy describe it as a spotlight. But um, because of that, it's very biased. Uh, I'll be more empathic towards somebody who is my skin color than of a different skin color towards somebody I know versus a stranger. It's difficult to be empathic at all to somebody who you view as disgusting or unattractive or dangerous or opposed to you. Hmm. And, um, and in fact, there's a lot of neuroscience studies we could get into that, that get at this not only through self-report, which is kind of unreliable, but actually looking at the correlates of empathy in the brain. You know, finding that some studies find that uh, one of my favorite studies tested male soccer fans in Europe, and um, they watch somebody who's been described as a fan of their same team receive electric shocks. And then it turns out they feel empathy. In fact, the same parts of their brain that would be active if they themselves were being shocked light up when they see this other person being shocked. So that's great. But then in another condition, they observe somebody who's described as not being of the, supporting the same team. And there, empathy shuts down. And in fact, what you get is kind of a blast of of pleasure circuitry when they watch the other person being shocked. And so empathy is biased and narrow and parochial, and and I think leads us astray in a million ways, much of which we discussed the last time we talked about this. Compassion is a bit different. So my argument is what we should replace empathy with for decision-making is cold-blooded reasoning. Uh, uh, you, of, of a more or less utilitarian sort, where you judge costs and benefits. You ask yourself, what can I do to make the world a better place? What could I do to increase happiness, to reduce suffering? And maybe you can view that as in, in a utilitarian way. You could do it in terms of a Kantian moral principles way. But however you do it, it's 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 an act of reason. Mm. What's missing in that, and that's the rational part of my subtitle, what's missing in that is everybody from David Hume on down has pointed out you need some sort of motivation, some sort of kick in the pants. And that's where I think compassion comes in. So many people blur empathy and compassion together, and I don't actually care how people use the terminology, but what's important is they're really different. So you can feel empathy. I see you suffer, and I feel your pain, and I zoom in on that. But you could also feel compassion, which is you care for somebody, you love them, you want them to thrive, you want them to be happy, but you don't feel their pain. And some really cool experiments on this, for instance, were done by, and, and this is going to connect to one of your deep interests, out of meditation, hmm. um, were done by Tanya Singer, who's a German neuroscientist, and Matthew Ricard, who's a, a Buddhist monk and the so-called happiest man alive. Yeah. And they did these studies where they trained people to feel empathy, uh, to, to experience the suffering of others. And then they trained another group to feel compassion. And the way they do it is through uh, loving kindness meditation, where you care about others, but you don't feel their pain. Now, it turns out these activate entirely different parts of the brain. There's always some overlap, but there's distinct parts of the brain. But more to the point, they have different effects. So the empathy training makes people suffer. It makes people selfish. It leads to burnout. While the compassion training is pleasurable. People enjoy it. They enjoy the feeling of kindness towards other people, and it makes them nicer. And recent studies, like very recent studies, by uh, the psychologist David Desteno in Northwestern back this up by finding that meditation training actually increases people's kindness. And the explanation that they give, and it's an open question why it does so, the explanation they give is, it ignites compassion but shuts down empathy circuitry. That is, you, you, you deal with suffering and you could deal with it better because you don't feel it. So this is one way I'd make the distinction between empathy and compassion.
0: Yeah, I think we probably raised this last time, but it, it's difficult to exaggerate how how fully our moral intuitions can misfire when guided by empathy as opposed to some kind of rational understanding of what will positively affect the world. The research done by Paul Slovak on moral illusions is fascinating here. When you when you show someone a, a picture of a single little girl who's in need, they are maximally motivated to help. But if you show them a picture of a little girl the same little girl and her brother, their altruistic motive to help is reduced reliably. And if you show them 10 kids, it's reduced further. And then if you give them statistics about hundreds of thousands of kids in need of the, the same aid, it drops off a cliff. And that is clearly a bug, not a feature. And that, that I think, relates to this this issue of empathy as opposed to what is a higher cognitive act of just assessing you know, where the needs are greatest in the world. One could argue that we are not evolutionarily well-designed to do that.
1: We, we aren't. I mean, I remember you cited the Slovak findings. I think it was in the moral landscape mm. where you, you say something to the fact that there's never been a psychological finding that so blatantly shows a moral error. Wh- whatever your moral philosophy is, you shouldn't think that one life is worth more than eight let alone worth more than a hundred. Especially when the eight contain the one life you're concerned exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's it's a moral disaster. And, and I mean, the cool thing is that upon reflection, we could realize this. So I'm not one of these psychologists who go on about how stupid we are, because I think every demonstration of human stupidity or irrationality has contained with it a demonstration of our intelligence, because we know it's irrational. We could point it out and say, God, that's silly. I mean, and you, we have a a lot of my book cites a lot of research show demonstrating the sort of phenomena you're talking about, but it's an old observation. I mean, Adam Smith, like 300 years ago, over, yeah, but about 300 years ago said, gave the example of an educated man of Europe hearing that uh, the country of China was destroyed at a time when no, they would have never known somebody from China. Mm. And Smith says, basically, your average European man would say, well, that's a shame. And he'd go on his day. But if he was to learn that tomorrow, he would lose his little finger. He'd freak out. He'd, he wouldn't sleep at all at night. How oh, am I going to lose my fingers? Will it be painful? Will it be, how will it affect my life? And he uses this example to show that our feelings are skewed in bizarre ways. But then he goes on to point out that we can step back and recognize that the death of thousands is far greater tragedy than the loss of our finger. And yeah. it's this dualism, this duality that fascinates me between what our gut tells us and what, what our minds tell us.
0: I believe he also goes on to say that any man who would weigh the loss of his finger over the lives of thousands or millions in some distant country, we would consider a moral monster.
1: Yes, he says, uh, he says something, human nature shudders at the thought. Right.
0: It's one of the great passages in all of literature, really. I think I quote the, the whole thing in, in The Moral Landscape. So, just a, a few points to pick up on what you just said about the neuroimaging research done on on empathy versus compassion. It's something that people don't tend to know about the meditative side of this, but compassion as a response to suffering from a meditative first person, and certainly from the view of of Buddhist psychology, is a, a highly positive emotion. It's not a negative emotion. You're not diminished by the feeling of compassion. The feeling of compassion is really exquisitely pleasurable it, it is what love feels like in the presence of suffering. The Buddhists have various modes of of what is called loving kindness and and loving kindness is this you know the generic feeling of wishing others happiness, and you can actually form this wish with an intensity that is that is really psychologically overwhelming, which is to say that it just it drowns out every other attitude you would have toward friends or strangers or even enemies, right? You can just get this humming even directed at a person who has done you harm or or who is just a kind of objectively evil. You you wish this person was was no longer suffering in all the ways that they are and will to be the kind of evil person they are, and you wish you you wish you could improve them. And so Buddhist meditators acquire these states of mind and it's the antithesis of, of being of merely being made to suffer by witnessing the suffering of others. It's, it's, it's the antithesis of of being made depressed when you are in the presence of a depressed person, say. And and, and so it, it really is the fact that empathy and compassion are used for the most part as synonyms in, in our culture is deeply confusing about what normative human psychology Promises and 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 just what is on the menu as far as conscious attitudes one can take toward toward the suffering of other people.
1: I think that's right. Um, I think that um, that I, I'm I'm now in a sort of a getting into in a debate in the journal Trends in Cognitive Sciences with uh, a an excellent neuroscientist uh, who disagrees with me, and there's all sorts of interesting points to go back and forth. But at one point he complains about the terminology, and he says compassion isn't opposed to empathy; it's a type of empathy. To which my response is, who cares? We could—I don't care how one calls it. Um, I'm totally comfortable to call them different types of empathy. In which case, I'm against one type of empathy but for another. But the distinction itself is absolutely critical, and it's so often missed, not only in the scientific field but also in everyday life. Um, I published an article on on empathy in the Boston Review, and I got a wonderful letter, which I quote in my book uh, with permission of of, of the writer by this woman who worked as a as a first responder after 911 and after doing this for about a week she couldn't take it anymore she was too oppressed by what she felt while her husband would happily and cheerfully um continued his work and it didn't seem to harm him at all and she was like what is going on is, is something wrong with him is something wrong with me and i think we make sense of this by saying that um there's separable there's at least two processes that lead to kindness and good behavior that can. And one of them, empathy, has some serious problems. And if we could nurture compassion, we not only can make the world a better place, but we could we could enjoy ourselves while while doing it.
0: To be clear, you also differentiate two versions of empathy, because there is the cognitive empathy of simply understanding another person's experience. And then there's the emotional contagion version, which we're talking about, which is you you are permeable to their suffering in a way that makes you suffer also.
1: That's right. Um, the the of empathy is is kind of a different bag, and it's very interesting. And we might turn to this later if we talk about Trump. But it's it's an understanding what goes on in the minds of other people. And, you know, and sometimes we call this mind reading or theory of mind or social intelligence. And to me, it's neither good nor bad. It's a tool. If you, Sam, want to make the world a better place um, and help people, help your family, help others, you can't do it unless you understand what people want, mm. what affects people, what people's interests are, what they believe Um, any good person, any good policymaker needs to have high cognitive empathy. On the other hand, suppose you wanted to bully and humiliate people, to seduce them against their will, to con them, to torture them. Here too, high cognitive empathy will help. If you want to make me miserable, it really helped to know how I work and how my mind works. So cognitive empathy is a form of intelligence, like any sort of intelligence can be used in different ways.
0: It's morally neutral, so to say that someone is, is highly empathic in that way is to simply say that they can take another person's point of view, but that you know, can be used for, for good or evil.
1: That's right. The, the worst people in the world have high cognitive empathy. It's how they're able to do so much damage. Right. Um, I wanted to step back to something you said about, about meditative practice and Buddhism, because there were two things you said, and one is easy really to get behind, which is the pleasure that comes through this sort of practice and doing good. In loving people, in in caring about people. But one thing I struggle with, and I don't know whether whether we have different views on this, is over the the blurring of distinctions that comes through Buddhism and this meditative practice. So, um <laughs> there's a joke I like. It's my only Buddhism joke. Uh, have you heard about the Buddhist vacuum cleaner? It comes with no attachments. And so one of the criticisms of of Buddhist practice and and to some extent a critic a, a criticism of my positions is that, There are some, there's some partiality we do want to have. I'm not only do I love my, my children more than, well, more than I love you, but I think I'm right to love my children more than I love you.
0: Okay. We're going to end the podcast right now. (laughs) One of the requirements of my podcast guests is that they love me as much as their own children.
1: I love you second. (laughs) I love, it's my, my two children, then you, then my wife.
0: Okay. That's that's the appropriate ranking. Is, is, Is that good? Especially for a third time guest. Yes. I think I'm agnostic as to whether one or the other answers is normative here or whether there are are equivalent norms, which are just mutually incompatible, but you could create worlds that are equally good by each recipe. But I I, I share your skepticism, or at least it's not intuitively obvious to me that if you could love everyone equally, that would be better than having some gradations of. Of moral concern, when we extend the circle in the way that Peter Singer talks about of our moral concern, the world does get better and better. I mean, what we we want to overcome our selfishness, our egocentricity, our clannishness, our tribalism, our nationalism, all of all of those things, all of those boundaries we erect where we care more about what 's inside than outside the boundary, those all seem at least they tend to be pathological, and they tend to be sources of conflict, and they tend to explain the the inequities in our world that are just, on their face, unfair, and in many cases, just unconscionable. But whether you want to just level all of those distinctions and love all Homo sapiens equivalently, that I don't know. And I'm not actually skeptical that it is a state of mind that's achievable. I've met enough long-term meditators, and I've, I've had enough experience in meditation and with psychedelics and just just changing the dials on conscious states to believe that it's possible to actually obviate all of those distinctions and to just feel that love is nothing more than a state of virtually limitless aspiration for the happiness of other conscious creatures and that it need not be any more preferential or directed than that. When you're talking about a monk who has come out of a cave doing nothing but compassion meditation for a decade, you're talking about somebody who who in most cases has no kids, doesn't have to function in the world the way we have to function, Certainly, civilization doesn't depend on people like that forming institutions and running our world. And so, you know, I don't know what to make of the fact that let's just grant that it's possible to change your attitude in such a way that you really just feel equivalent love for everybody, and there's no obvious cost to you for doing that. I don't know what, I don't know what the cost would be to the species or to society if if everyone was like that. And and Intuitively I feel like it makes sense for me to be more concerned and therefore much more responsible for and and, and to my kids than for yours. But at a greater level of of abstraction, when I talk about how I want society to be run, I don't want to try to legislate my selfishness. I just have to I have to understand that at the level of laws and institutions, fairness is a value that more often than not conserves everyone's interests better than successfully gaming a corrupt system.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm nodding. I mean, I, I, I want to zoom in on the last thing you said because it was astonishing to me. But for most of what you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding in agreement. Certainly, the world would be much better if our moral circle was expanded. And certainly, uh, the world would be much better if we cared a little bit more for people outside of our group and correspondingly relatively less for people inside of our group. It's not, it's not that we don't care for our own enough. a problem is mm-hmm. we don't care for others enough. And I love your distinction as well, which is a way I kind of think about it now is, yeah, I love my children more than I love your children. But um, I understand stepping back that a just society should treat them the same. Right. So, um, so if I have a summer job um, opening, um, I understand my university regulations uh, say I can't hire my, my sons. And you know, I actually think that's a good rule. I love my sons. I'd like to hire them and be a job for them and everything. But I could step back and say, yeah, we shouldn't be allowed to let our own uh, personal preferences, our own emotional family ties, distort systems that should be just and 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 fair. The the part of what you said, which I just gotta zoom in on, is do you really think it's possible? Put aside somebody who has no prior attachments at all, some some monk living in a cave. Mm-hmm. Have you met or do you think you will ever will meet people who have had children and raised them who would treat the death of their child no differently than the death of a strange child?
0: Yeah, I do actually. And wow. and I'm not sure what I think of it. I can tell you these are extraordinarily happy people. So what you get from them is not a perceived deficit of compassion or love or engagement with the welfare of other people but you get a kind of obliteration of preference the problem in their case is it's a surfeit of compassion and love and engagement so that they don't honor the kinds of normal you know family ties or yeah. or preferences that we consider normative and that we would be personally scandalized to not honor ourselves the norms of preference which seem good to us and we would feel that we, we feel that we have a duty to enforce in our own lives, and we would be racked by guilt if we noticed a lapse in honoring those duties. These are people who have just blown past all of that because they have used their attention in such a unconventional and in some ways impersonal way, but it's an impersonal way that becomes highly personal or at least highly intimate in their relations with other people. So for instance, I, w- I studied with one. One teacher in India, a man named Punjaji, he actually, he wasn't Buddhist. He was, he was Hindu, but he was not teaching anything, especially Hindu. I mean, he was, he, was, he was talking very much in the tradition of, if people are aware of these terms, and they will get them from my book, Waking Up, the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual, the non-dual teachings of Vedanta, which are, are nominally Hindu. They're really just Indian. And there's nothing about gods or goddesses or any of the garish religiosity you, you see in Hinduism he was a really i mean there was a lot that he taught that i disagreed with and and or at least there were some crucial bits that that he taught that i disagreed with and and again you can you can find that in waking up if you're interested but he was a a really shockingly charismatic and wise person to be in the presence of he was really somebody who could just bowl you over with his compassion and his The force of his attention. If I were not as scrupulous as I am about attributing, you know, causality here, 90% of the people who spent any significant time around this guy thought he had, you know, magic powers. This is a highly unusual experience of, of being in a person's presence. Part of what made him so powerful was that, actually, ironically, he had extraordinarily high empathy of the unproductive kind, but it was kind of anchored to nothing in his mind. I mean, so, so for instance, if someone would have a powerful experience in his presence and, you know, start to cry, you know, tears would just pour out of his eyes. You know, he would just immediately start crying with the person. And when somebody would laugh, he would laugh, you know, twice as hard. It was like he was a amplifier of the states of consciousness of the people around him in a way that was really thrilling. And, and, and again, it, there was a, you know, a feedback mechanism here where you know, people would just have a bigger experience because of the ways in which he was mirroring their experience. And there was no sense at all that this was an act. I mean, he would have to have been the, the greatest actor on Earth for this to be brought off. But yeah, he's, I think, I forget the details of the story, but the story about you know, wh- how he behaved when his own son died <laughs> would shock you with its apparent aloofness, right? I mean, this is a person for whom a central part of his teaching was that death is not a problem, and he's not hanging on to his own life or the lives of those he loves with any attachment at all. And he was advertising the benefits of this attitude all the time because he's, he was the happiest man you ever met. But I think when push came to shove and he had to react to the death of his son, he wouldn't react the way you or I would or the way you or I would want to react given how we view the world.
1: That's an extraordinary story. I mean, I, I you have a lot of stories like that in waking up of people like that. And I haven't encountered many such people. I, I met Matthew Ricard once and it was mm-hmm. a, a profoundly moving experience for me. And I'm not I, I'm not easily impressed. I am I'm sort of I tend to be cynical about people. I tend to be really cynical about people who claim to have certain abilities and the like. But I simply had a short meeting from we went out know, for tea, and we just talked. And there's something about people who have attained a certain mental capacity or set of capacities that you can tell by being with them that they have it. Their bodies afford it. They just it they just give it off from a mile away. It's like um it's 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 analogous to charisma, which some people have, apparently. um. Bill Clinton is supposed to be able to walk into, like, a, a, a large room, and people just gather around him. Their eyes will be drawn towards him. And whatever it is that someone like Matthew Ricard has is, is extraordinary in a different way, which is he, in some literal sense, exudes peace and compassion. Having said that, um, some of it freaks me out, and some of it morally troubles me. I mean, we talked about the bonds of family, but I can't imagine any such people having bonds of friendship. Um you, I would imagine you get a lot of email, Sam. I imagine you get a lot of email asking you for favors. So when I email you and say, hey, you know, I have a book coming out, you're in a mood for a podcast. You, you, um, because we're friends, you respond to me different than if I were, were a total stranger. Suppose you didn't suppose you treated everything on its merits uh, with no bonds, no, no connectedness. It'd be hard to see you as a good person.
0: But you don't see Matthew that way. No. If you knew more about the details of his life, you might find that it's not aligned with the way you parcel your concern. For instance, the example you just gave, he might be less preferential toward friends or not. I actually know Matthew. I I don't often see him, but I've spent a fair amount of time with him. I mean, he's what I would call a mensch. He's just like the most decent guy you're going to meet all year. He's He's just a wonderful person. But he's a I studied with his teacher Kensi Rinpoche, who was a very famous lama, and who many, you know, Tibetan lamas thought was, you know, one of the greatest meditation masters of his generation. He died, unfortunately, about twenty years ago, but maybe it's more than that. I, I, I now notice as I, I get older, whenever I estimate how much time has passed, <laughs> I'm off by fifty percent at least. Yeah, someone should study that problem. Self-deception, I think, has something to do with it. So, anyway, Kensi Rinpoche was just this. 800 pound gorilla of meditation he'd spent more than 20 years practicing in solitude and Matthew was his closest attendant for years and years i think just just to give you kind of to rank order what's possible here Matthew certainly wouldn't put himself anywhere near any of his teachers on the hierarchy mm-hmm. of what's possible in terms of you know transforming your your moment to moment conscious experience and therefore the likelihood of how you, you show up for others. Matthew's great because, as you know, he's got this—he a, was a scientist before he became a monk. He was a biologist. molecular biologist. And the work he's, he's done in collaborating with neuroscientists who do neuroimaging work on meditation has been, has been great. And he's, you know, he's, a, he's a real meditator, so he can honestly talk about what he's doing inside the scanner, and that's, that's fantastic. But again, even his in his, his case, he's he's made a, a very strange life decision, certainly from your point of view. I mean, he's decided to be a monk and to not have kids, to not have a career in science, to not, it's in some ways an accident that he, that you even know about him because he could just be, and for the longest time, he was just sitting in a tiny little monk cell in Kathmandu serving his guru.
1: That's right. And when I met him, he was spending six months of each year in total solitude, mm. which again, boggles my mind because if I spend a half hour by myself, I start to want to check my email and get anxious. Um, so, so it, it, it is, it is impressive. Um, and, and, and I accept your point, which is I need to sort of work to become more open-minded about what the world would be like if certain things which I hold dear were taken away. There's, um, there's a story I like um, of why economics got called dismal science, mm. and it's because the, t- the term was given by Carlyle, and Carlyle was enraged at the economists who were uh, dismissing an institution that Carlyle took very seriously. An economist says, said, this is an immoral institution, and Carlyle says, you have no sense of feeling, you have no sense of tradition, and he was talking about slavery. Mm. And so, you know, he was blasting the economists for being so cold-blooded, they couldn't appreciate the value and importance of slavery. And sometimes when I feel my own emotional pulls towards certain things, and I feel like, I feel confident that whatever pulls I have along, say, racial lines are immoral, but I'm less certain about family lines or friendship lines, um, I think I need to be reminded, we all need to be reminded, well, we need to step back and look, what, what will future generations say? What will we say when we're at our, at our best selves? Um, it's going to take more than that for me to give up the idea that I should love my children more than I love your children. But, but it is worth thinking about.
0: And it's interesting to consider moral emergencies and and how people respond in them and how we would judge their response. So just just imagine if you know you had a a burning building, and our children were in there, and I could run in to save them. Say I'm I'm on site and I I can run in and save whoever I can save. But because I know my child's in there, my priority is to get my child and who could blame me for that, right? So I run in there and I see your child who I can quickly save, but I need to look for my child. So I just run past your child and go looking for mine. And at the, you know, the end of the day, I save no one, say, or I only save mine. It really, really was a zero sum contest between yours and mine. You know, if you could watch that play out if you if you had a video of what I did in that house, right, and you saw me run past your child and just go looking for mine, I think it's just hard to know where to find the norm there. A certain degree of searching and a certain degree of disinterest with respect to the fate of your child begins to look totally pathological. It looks just morbidly selfish, but some bias. Seems only natural, and we might view me strangely if, if I showed no bias at all. Again, I don't know what what the right answer is. There, we're living as though almost a total detachment from other people's fates, apart from the fates of our own family, is normal and healthy. And when push comes to shove, I th- that that is clearly revealed to not be healthy.
1: Right. It's plain that the extremes are untenable. Imagine you weren't looking for your child, but your child's favorite teddy bear. Right. Well, then, and then you're kind of a monster, you know, searching around for that while my child burns to death. I mean, to make matters worse, I mean, Peter Singer is famously, I think, he very convincingly pointed out that the example you're giving is a sort of weird science fiction example, and you might reassure, we might reassure, as well, that'll never happen. But Singer points out, we're stuck in this dilemma every day of our lives. Yeah as we devote resources, you know, I, I like a lot of parents spend a lot of money on my kids, including things that they don't, you know, things that make your lives better, but aren't necessary and things that are just fun, toy, expensive toys and vacations and so on while other children die. And, and Singer points out that, um, I really am in that burning building. Yeah. I am in that burning building buying my son an Xbox while kids from Africa die in the corner. And, and it's, it's difficult to confront this. And I think people get very upset when Peter Singer brings it, up, brings it up. But it is a moral dilemma that we are continually living with and continually struggling with. And I don't know what the right answer is, but I do have a sense that the way we're doing it every day is the wrong way. We are not devoting enough attention to those in need. We're devoting too much attention to those we love.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I had Singer on the podcast. And I also had Will McCaskill, who very uh-huh. much argues in the same line. And you know, I, I don't have a a good answer. I think one thing I did as a result of my conversation with Will was I realized that I just, I needed to kind of automate this insight. So Will is very involved in the the effective altruism community, and, and he arguably I think started the, the movement and. There are websites like GiveWell.org that rate charities, and they've quantified that to to save a an individual human life costs now thirty five hundred dollars. I mean that's that's the amount of money you have to allocate where you can say, as as a matter of likely math, you have saved one human life. And the calculation there is is with reference to the work of the Against Malaria Foundation. They Mm -hmm. they put up these insecticide treated bed nets, and malaria death has come down by. Fifty percent is still close to a million people dying every year, but it was very recently two million people dying a year from mosquito-borne—not not 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 all mosquito-borne illness, just malaria, actually. So, in response to my conversation with Will, I just decided, well, I'm still going to buy the Xbox. I know, I know that I can't conform my life and my you know the fun I have with my kids so fully to this the logic of this triage, right? So that I you know strip all the fun out of life and just give. Everything to the Against Malaria Foundation. But I decided that the first $3,500 that comes into the podcast every month will just by definition go to the Against Malaria Foundation. I don't have to think about it, it just happens every month. I would have to decide to stop it from happening. I think doing more things like that, I mean, so what Will does is there's actually a giving pledge where people decide to give 10% of their, I think it's at least 10% of their income to charity and to these most effective charities each year. Any kind of change you want to see in the world that you want to be effective, automating it and taking it out of the cognitive overhead of having to be re-inspired to do it each day or each year or each period, that's an important thing to do. That's why I think the greatest changes in human well-being and in human morality will come not from each of us individually refining our ethical code to the point where we are bypassing every moral illusion, right, so that every time Paul Slovic shows us a picture of a little girl, we have the exact right level of concern, and when we see eight kids, we have, you know, we have eightfold more, or whatever it would be, but to change our laws and institutions and tax codes and everything else so that more good is getting done without us having to be saints in the meantime.
1: I think that that's right. I think that um this comes up a lot in discussions of empathy. So I, I you know I, I talk about the failings of empathy in our personal lives, particularly, say giving to charity or deciding how to treat other people. And a perfectly good response I, I sometimes get is well, okay, I'm a high empathy person. What am I going to do about it? And you know one answer concerns activities like meditative practice, but you know you could be skeptical over how well that works for many people. Um, I mean, I think your answer is best, which is in a good society and actually as good individuals, we're smart enough to develop procedures, Mm -hmm. uh, mechanisms that take things out of our hands. And this applies at every level. Uh, The political theorist Jan Elster points out that's what a constitution is. A constitution is a bunch of people saying, look, we are irrational people. And sometime in the future, we're going to be tempted to make dumb, Mm -hmm. irrational choices. So let's set up something to stop us. And let's set us, let's set up something that, um, to override our base instincts, we can change this, this stopping mechanism, but let's make it difficult to change. So it takes years and years. So no matter how much Americans might choose, they want to reelect a popular president for a third term, they can't. If all the white Americans decide they want to reinstantiate the institution of slavery, they can't. And laws work that way. Constitutions work that way. I think, I think good diets work that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and charitable giving could work that way um, in that you have uh, automatic withdrawal or whatever. So you, in, a, in an enlightened moment, you say, this is the kind of person I want to be. And you don't wait for your gut feelings all the time. I think um, overriding other uh, disruptive sentiments works the same way. Like um, suppose I have to choose somebody to be a, a graduate student or, or something like that. And I know full well that there are all sorts of biases having to do with physical attractiveness, with race, with gender. And suppose I believe, upon contemplation, that it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter how good-looking the person is. shouldn't matter whether they were from the same country as me. Well, one thing I could try to do is say, okay, I'm going to try to really be very hard. I'm going to try very hard not to be biased. And we're horrible at that. Yeah. We overcorrect, we undercorrect, we justify. So what we, what we do when we're at our best is develop some systems. Like, for instance, you, um, you don't look at the pictures. You do some sort of blind, blind reviewing so your biases can't come into play. Yeah. Now, it's harder to see how this is done when it comes to broader policy decisions, but people are working on it. Paul Slovic, actually, who we've referenced a few times, talks about this a lot. So right now, for instance, government's decisions over where to send aid or where to go to war are made basically on gut feelings, and they're basically based on sad stories and photographs of children washed ashore and so on, and it just makes the world worse. And people like Slovak wonder, can we set up some fairly neutral triggering procedures that say, in America, when a situation gets this bad, according to some numbers and some objective judgments, it's a national emergency, we send in money. Uh, overseas, if this many people die under such and so circumstances, we initiate some sort of investigative procedure. It sounds cold and bureaucratic, but I think cold and bureaucratic is much better than hot-blooded and arbitrary.
0: There there was something you said when referencing the soccer study, in-group empathy and out-group schadenfreude, I guess. yes. And this this reminded me of a question we got on Twitter. Someone was asking about the relationship between empathy and identity politics. I, gu- I guess based on the research you just cited, there's a pretty straightforward connection there. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: There's a profound connection. We're, we're very empathic creatures, but it always works out that the empathy tends to, to focus on those from within our group and not to the outgroup. I got into a good discussion once with Simon Baron-Cohen, the psychologist, who's very pro-empathy. And he said that if only, um, we're talking about the time of the, of the uh, war in Gaza, and um, he's talking to he only the Palestinians and the Israelis had more empathy, this wouldn't happen. The Israelis would realize that uh, the suffering of the Palestinians and vice versa, and there would be peace. And, and my feeling here is that that's exactly, it's exactly the opposite. That that conflict in particular suffered from an abundance of empathy. The Israelis at the time felt huge empathy for the suffering of teenagers who were kidnapped, of their families. The Palestinians felt tremendous empathy for their countrymen who were imprisoned and tortured. Um, There were abundant empathy, and there's always abundant empathy at the core of any conflict. And the reason why it drives conflict is I feel tremendous empathy for the American who is tortured and captured. And as a rule, it's very hard for me to feel empathy for the Syrian or for the Iraqi and so on. And, and, you know, we could, we could now pull it down a little bit in the aftermath of the 2016 election. I think, uh, I think Clinton voters are exquisitely good at empathy towards other Clinton voters and Trump voters for Trump voters. Having empathy for your political en- enemies is, is difficult. And I think actually, and for the most part, um, so hard that it's not worth attaining, we should try for other things.
0: I think we certainly want the other form of empathy. I mean, we want to be able to understand yes. why people decided what they decided, and we don't want to be just imagining motives that don't exist or, or weighting them in ways that are totally unrealistic. We inevitably will say something about politics. People would expect that of us. By
1: by law, there could be no discussion of over thirty minutes that doesn't uh, mention Trump.
0: I'm going to steer you toward Trump, but before we go there, as you may or may not know, I've been fairly obsessed with artificial intelligence over the last, I don't know, 18 months or so. And we solicited some questions from Twitter, and many people asked about this. Have you gone down this rabbit hole at all? Have you thought about AI much? And there was one question I saw here, which was, given your research on empathy, how should we program an AI with respect to it?
1: So I actually hadn't taken seriously the AI worries. Um, and honestly, I'll be honest, I dismissed them as somewhat crackpot mm. until I listened to you talk about it. I think it was a TED Talk. and yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and, and, then, and then, so thank you. That got me worried about yet something else. Oh, no, good. Um, and I, I found it fairly persuasive that there's an issue here we should be devoting a, a lot more thought to. Um, the question of putting empathy into machines, which is is – um, is I think in some way morally fraught because um if I'm right that empathy leads to capricious and arbitrary decisions, then if we put empathy into computers or robots, we end up with capricious and arbitrary computers and robots. I think when people think about putting empathy into machines, they often think about it from a marketing point of view, such that a, a, a you know a household robot or even a, an interface on a mac computer that is somewhat empathic will um will be more pleasurable to interact with, more humanoid, more human-like, and we'll get more pleasure uh, dealing with it. And that might be the case. I've actually heard a contrary view uh, from my friend David Pizarro, who points out that when dealing with a lot of uh, interactions, we actually don't want empathy. We want a sort of uh, cold-blooded interaction that we don't have to become emotionally invested in.
0: We want professionalism. I think think of of our super-intelligent AI... I think we want professionalism more than we want emotional contagion. You don't want if, if you're anxious and consulting your robot doctor, you don't want that anxiety mirrored back to you, right? You want you want as stately a physician as you ever met in, in the living world now embodied yes. in
1: this machine. Yes, yeah. So I'm I'm very happy if I have a home blood pressure cuff, which just gives me the numbers and doesn't say Oh man, I feel terrible for you. This must be very upsetting. Like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dude, dude, I'm, I'm holding back here. It's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, the machine starts to, a little, little graphical tears trickle down to interface. I, I'm sure people involved in marketing these devices think that they're appealing. I think that David is right. And we're going to discover that for a lot of interfaces, we just want uh, a, a sort of an, an affect free, emotion free uh, interaction. And um and I think we find um as I find, for instance, with with uh, uh interfaces where you have to call the airport or something, when it reassures me that that it's worried about me and so on, I find it cloying and annoying and intrusive. I just want I just want the data. Um I I wanna I wanna save my empathy for real people.
0: Yeah, but I, I think the question goes to what will be normative on the side of the AI. So do we want AI I guess let's leave Consciousness aside for the moment. That's right. But do we want an AI that actually has more than just factual knowledge of our preferences? Insofar as it could emulate our emotional experience, could that give it capacities Uh, that that we we want it to have so as to better conserve our interests?
1: So here here's what I would here's my take on it. I think we want AI with compassion. I think we particularly want AI of compassion towards us. Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether this came from you or somebody else, but somebody gave the following scenario for how the world will end. The world's going to end when someone programs a powerful computer that interfaces with other things um, to to get rid of spam on email. And then the computer will promptly destroy the world as a suitable way to do this. we want machines to be have a guard against doing that, where they say, "Well, human life is valuable, human flourishing, and animal flourishing is valuable." So, if I want if I want AI that is involved in making significant decisions, I want it to have compassion. I don't, however, want it to have uh, empathy. I think empathy makes us it makes us, among other things, racist. Uh, the last thing in the world we need is racist AI.
0: There's been some concern that we already have racist AI. Uh, have yes, you, have I, you heard this? Yes, what? I
1: have. Go go ahead, remind me.
0: If I recall correctly, there, there are algorithms that decide on the paroling of prisoners and or, you know, whether people get mortgages. And there is some evidence, I could be making a, a bit of a hash of this, but there was some evidence in, in one or both of these categories that the AI was taking racial characteristics into its calculation. And then that wasn't that hadn't been programmed in. that was just an emergent property of it finding of all the data available, this data was was relevant, in the case of prisoners, the, the recidivism rate. You know, if it's just a fact that black parolees recidivate more, right. reoffend more, I don't know in fact that it is, but let's just say that it is. and an AI notices that, well, then of course, the AI, if you're going to be predicting whether a person is likely to violate their parole. You are going to take race into account if it's actually descriptively true of the data that it's a variable and so i think there there was at least one story i saw where you had people scandalized by by racist ai
1: when i was was young and very nerdy more nerdy than i am now i like gobbled up all science fiction and isaac asimov had a tremendous influence on me and he uh, had all of his work on robots and he had these three laws of robotics and And you know, if you think about it as a you know from a more sophisticated view, the laws of robotics weren't particularly morally coherent, like one of them is you should never uh harm a human or through an action allow a human to come to harm. but does that mean a robot's going to run around trying to save people's lives all the time because we're for, we're continually not allowing people to come to harm but hmm. But the spirit of the endeavor is right, which is I would wire up, I think, and in fact, I think in some way, as, as robots now become more powerful, you could imagine becoming compulsory to wire up these machines with some morality. This comes up with driving cars. Sorry, with, mm, the, yeah. with the automatic, right? The, the, the computer-driven cars where, you know, are they going to be utilitarian? Are they going to have principles? And there's a lot of good debates on that. But they have to be something. They have to have some consistent moral principles that take into account human life and human flourishing. And the last thing you want to stick in there is is something that says, well, if someone is adorable, care for them more. Always count a single life as more than 100 lives. There's no justification for putting the sort of stupidities of empathy that we're often stuck with to putting them into the machines that we create.
0: That's one thing I love about this moment of having to think about super intelligent AIs. It's amazingly clarifying of moral priorities. All these people who, until yesterday, said, well, you know, who's to say what's true in the moral sphere? Once you force them to weigh in on how should we program the algorithm for self-driving cars, they immediately see that, okay, you have to solve these problems one way or another. These cars will be driving. Do you want them to be racist cars? Do you want them to preferentially drive over old people as opposed to children? What makes sense, and to say that there is no norm there to be followed is to just—you're going to be designing one by accident, then, right? If if you make a car that is totally unbiased with respect to the lives it saves, well, then you've made this kind of this Buddhist car, right? You've made this—you've made the Matthew Ricard car. Say that may be the right answer, but you have taken a position just by default, and and the moment you begin to design away from that kind of pure equality, you are forced to make moral decisions. And I think it's it's pretty clear that we have trolley problems that we have to solve. And we have, at a minimum, we have to admit that killing one person is better than killing five. And we have to design our cars to, to have that preference. When you put morality in the hands of the engineers, you see that you can't take refuge in in any kind of moral relativism. You actually have to answer these questions for yourself.
1: I I, I envision this future where, you know, you walk into a car dealership and you order one of these cars and you're sitting back and you're paying for it. And then you're asked, what kind of setting do you want? Do you want a racist, Buddhist, uh, radical feminist, religious fundamentalist?
0: I don't know if you've heard this research, but when they ask people what the cars should do on on the question of, you know how biased should it be to save the driver over the pedestrian say so if it's a choice between avoiding a pedestrian and killing the driver or killing the pedestrian how should the car decide most people say in the abstract it should just be unbiased you should be indifferent between those two but when you ask people would you buy a car that was indifferent between your the driver's life and the and the pedestrians they say no they want they want a car that's going to protect their lives so it's hard to adhere to the thing you think is the right answer, it seems. And there, I actually don't know how you solve that problem. I think probably the best solution is to not advertise how you've solved it. That's right? interesting, yeah. I think if you make it totally transparent, it will be a barrier to the adoption of technology that will be, on balance, immensely life-saving for everyone, you know, dr- drivers and pedestrians included. We now have tens of thousands of people every year reliably being killed by cars. We could bring that down by a factor of 10 or 100, and then the, the deaths that would remain would still be these tragedies that we would have to think long and hard about whether the algorithm performed the way we want it to, but still, that we have to adopt this technology as quickly as, as is feasible. So I think transparency here could be a bad idea.
1: I think it's true. I mean, I, I find it. I, I know people who've insisted they would never go into a self-driving car, um, and I find this bizarre because the the alternative is far more dangerous. But but you're right, and I think there's also this fear of new technology, where um, where there'll be a reluctance to use them. Apparently, there was a reluctance to use elevators that didn't <laughs> right. have an elevator operator for right. a long time. So they had to have some schnooks stand there, yeah. in order so people would feel calm enough to go inside that. That's um, hilarious. But, but, but 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 i agree with the general point which is is a more general one which is there's no opting out of moral choices um, failing to make a moral choice over say giving to charity or what your car should do is itself a moral choice yeah and uh, and, and and driven by a moral philosophy um I also just can't resist adding and I think this is from the Very Bad Wizards uh, group, but you can imagine a car that had a certain morality and then you got into it and it automatically drove you to like Oxfam and refused to let you move right. until you gave them a lot of money. Yeah so you really you don't want too moral a car. You want a car sort of just moral enough to do your bidding uh, but not not much more.
0: Have you been watching any of these shows or films that deal with AI like Ex Machina or Westworld or Humans?
1: I've been I've been watching all of these shows mm-hmm. <laughs> that deal with with AI and uh, and and they all they all deal with um uh, Mag- Ex Machina and uh, and Westworld all deal with the 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 struggle we have when something looks human enough acts human enough it is irresistible not to treat it as a person. Mm-hmm. And 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 their philosophers and psychologists and lay people might split. They might say, "Look, if if it looks like a person and 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 talks like a person, and everything, then it it has a consciousness like a person." Dan Dennett would would most likely say that. And it's interesting. Different movies and different TV shows. And I actually think movies and TV's are often instruments of some very good philosophy. They go different ways on this. So so ex machina. I, I hate to spoil it, but but um, so viewers should turn off the sound for the next 60 seconds. They don't want to hear it. But there's a robot that's entirely, you feel tremendous empathy for her and caring for her. The main character trusts her. And then she cold bloodedly betrays him, mm. locks him in a room to starve to death while she goes on her way. And it becomes entirely clear that all of this was simply a mechanism that she used to to to, to win over his love. Well, for Westworld, it's more the opposite, where mm-hmm. the the, the, the um, hosts, I guess, um, Dolores and others, are seen as, as they're really people as as viewers who're supposed to see them as people. And the guests who forget about this, who who brutalize them, they're the monsters.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think all of these films and shows are worth watching. I mean they they're all a little uneven from my point of view. There are moments where you think this isn't the greatest film or the greatest television show you've ever seen, but they all have their moments where they, as you said, they're they're really doing some very powerful philosophy by by forcing you to have this vicarious experience of being in the presence of something that is passing the Turing test in a totally compelling way, and 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 not the way that Turing originally right. set it up. I mean, we're we're talking about robots that are no longer in the uncanny valley and looking weird they they are looking like humans they're as human as human and they are in certain of these cases much smarter than people and this reveals a few things to me that that are probably not surprising but again it's to experience it vicariously just you know hour by hour watching these things is different than just knowing it in the abstract
1: that's right the 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 the, the best movies and films and Uh, movies and TV shows and books often take a philosophical thought experiment and they make it vivid in such a way you could really appreciate it. And I think that that sentient, realistic humanoid AI is a perfect example of these shows confronting us with, this is a possibility, how will we react? I
0: think it tells us how we will react. I think once something looks like a human and talks like a human and demonstrates intelligence that is at least at human level, I think for reasons I gave somewhere on this podcast and elsewhere when I've talked about AI, I think I think human level AI is a mirage. I think that the moment we have anything like human level AI, we, we will have superhuman AI. We're not going to make our AI that passes the Turing test less good at math than your phone is, it'll be a superhuman right. calculator, it'll be superhuman in every way that it does anything that narrow AI does now. So once this all gets knit together in a humanoid form that passes the Turing test and shows general intelligence and looks looks as good as as we look, which is to say it looks as much like a locus of consciousness as we do, then I think a few things will happen very quickly. One is that we will lose sight of the fact of whether or not it's, philosophically or scientifically interesting to wonder whether this thing is conscious. I think some people like me, you know, who are convinced that the hard problem of consciousness is real might hold on to it for a while, but every intuition we have of something being conscious, every intuition we have that other people are conscious, will be driven hard in the presence of these artifacts. And it will be true to say that we won't know whether they're conscious unless we understand how consciousness emerges from the physical world, but we will follow Dan Dennett in feeling that it's a no longer interesting question because we find we actually can't stay interested in it in the presence of machines that are functioning at least as well, if not better, than we are and will almost certainly be designed to talk about their experience in ways that suggest that they're having an experience. And so that, that, that's one part, that we will feel, we will grant them consciousness by default, even though we may have no deep reason to believe that they're conscious. And the other thing that is, is brought up by Westworld to a unique degree, I guess humans also, is that many of the ways in which people imagine using robots of this sort, we would use them in ways we, at least we imagine, that we wouldn't use other human beings on the assumption that they're not conscious, right? That they're just computers that, that really can't suffer. But I think it's the other side of this coin. Once we helplessly attribute states of consciousness to these machines, it will be damaging to our own sense of ourselves to treat them badly. But we're going to be in the presence of digital slaves, and just how well do you need to treat your slaves? And what does it mean to have a superhumanly intelligent slave? I mean, that that just becomes a a safety problem. How do you maintain a master-servant relationship to something that's smarter than you are and getting smarter all the time? But part of what Westworld brings up is that you are destroying human consciousness by letting yourself act out all of your baser impulses on robots on the assumption that they can't suffer because the acting out is part of the problem. It actually diminishes your own moral worth, whether or not these robots are conscious.
1: Right. So you have these two things: intention. One is that when it starts to look like a person and talk, it'll be irresistible to see it as conscious. You know, the, you could walk around and you could talk to me and doubt that I'm conscious, and we could doubt that about other people. But it's an intellectual exercise. It's irresistible to treat other people as having feelings emotions uh consciousness and it'll be irresistible to treat these machines as well and then we want to use them and so in Westworld yeah. is a particularly dramatic example of this where uh characters are meant to be uh raped and, and and assaulted and shot and it's supposed to be you know fun and games but the reality of it is these two things are our intention anybody who were to assault uh, the character Dolores, uh, the, the the young woman who's a robot, would be seen as morally indistinguishable from someone who would assault any person, and so, so we we are at risk for the first time in human civilization, of in some sense building machines that we are then morally it's morally repugnant to use in the sense that they're constructed for. Yeah, it would be like genetically engineering a race of people but wiring up their brains so that they're utterly subservient and enjoy performing at our will. Well, that's kind of gross. And, and I think we would, we're very quickly going to reach a point where we'll see the same thing with our machines. And, and then what I would imagine is, and this goes back to building machines without empathy or, or perhaps without compassion, is there may be a business in building machines to do things that aren't that smart. I'd rather have my floor vacuumed by a Roomba than by somebody who has an IQ of 140, but is wired up to be a slave.
0: I think the the humanoid component here is the main variable. If it looks like a Roomba, you know, it doesn't. It actually doesn't matter how smart it is. You won't feel that you're enslaving a conscious creature. What what if it could talk? It comes down to the interface. Insofar as you humanize the interface, you drive the intuitions that now you're in relationship to a, a person. But if you make it look like a Roomba and sound like a Roomba, it doesn't really matter what its capacities are as long as it still seems mechanical. I mean, the interesting wrinkle there, of course, is that ethically speaking, what really should matter is what's true on the side of the Roomba, right? So, so if the Roomba can suffer, if you've built a mechanical slave that you can't possibly empathize with because it, look, it doesn't have any of the, the user interface components that would allow you to do it, but it's actually having an experience of the world that is vastly deeper and richer and more poignant than your own, right? Well, then you have just the term of jargon now in the AI community. I think this is probably due to Nick Bostrom's book, but maybe he got this from mm-hmm. somewhere. The term is mind crime. You're creating minds that can suffer, whether in simulation or in, in individual you know, robots. This would be a an unimaginably bad thing to do. I mean, you are you would be on par with Yahweh, you know, creating a hell and populating it. If there's more evil to be found in the universe than that, I don't know where to look for it, but that's something we're in danger of doing insofar as we're rolling the dice with some form of information processing being the basis of consciousness. If consciousness is just some version of information processing, well then, If we begin to do that well enough, it won't matter whether we can tell from the outside. We may just create it inside something we can't feel compassion for.
1: That's right. So there are two points. One point is your moral one, which is whether or not we know it, we may be doing terrible moral acts. We may be constructing conscious creatures and then tormenting them. Or alternatively, we may be creating creatures that are machines that do our bidding and have no consciousness at all. it's it's no worse to assault the robot in Westworld than it is to, to, you know, to to bang a hammer against your toaster. But so that's the moral question.
0: But it still could diminish you as a person to treat her Uh, like a toaster. yes. Yes. Given what she looks like. And that's I mean, so so raping Dolores on some level turns you into a rapist, whether or not. She's more like a woman or
1: more like a toaster. Yes, yeah, so so this is akin to, this treatment of robots is akin to, I forget the philosopher, it, it, it may, I, I forget who the philosopher was, uh, but the claim was that animals have no moral status at all. However, you shouldn't torment animals because it'll make you a bad person with regard to other people mm-hmm. and people count. And, and it's true, it's, it's, I mean, you, one wonders, one, after all, we do all sorts of killing and harming of virtual characters on video games, and that doesn't seem to transfer. It hasn't made us worse people. Um, if there is an effect on increasing our, our, our violence towards real humans, it hasn't shown up in any of the homicide statistics, or, and the studies are a mess. But I would agree with you that there's a world of difference between sitting in my Xbox and shooting, you know, aliens as opposed to the real physical feeling, say, of strangling someone who's indistinguishable from a person. Mm. And and that's the second point, which is even if they aren't conscious, even if, as a matter of fact, from, from a God's eye view, they're just things, um, it will seem to us as if they're conscious, and then the act of tormenting conscious people will either be repugnant to us or... <laughs> If it isn't, it will uh, lead us to be be worse moral beings. So those are the dilemmas we're going to run into, probably within our lifetimes.
0: Yeah. Actually, there's somebody coming on the podcast in probably a month who can answer this question, but I don't know which is closer, realistically. Machine intelligence that passes the Turing test or robot interface, you know, robot faces that are no longer uncanny to us. Yeah, I don't know which will be built first, but it is interesting to consider that the dissociation here is a strange one. We could build machines that can suffer, toward which we have a potentially infinite moral obligation and yet no capacity to feel anything for, and yet we can build very seductive toasters who will, <laughs> who, the mistreatment of which will genuinely harm our minds and social relationships going forward. It's very strange. Another outcome of AI, which is problematic and and is already upon us, is the way in which automation and job replacement is ramifying and just increasing wealth inequality. Certainly most wealth inequality now is being generated not by trade or, or by shipping jobs overseas to people, but by increasing automation. Wealth inequality in my view, is an increasing problem. Do you have any thoughts about it?
1: So it, it, it's something which has interested me. Um, along with uh, two people working with me at Yale, Christina Starmans and, and Mark Sheskin, we're writing a paper for Nature Human Behavior looking at um, the the psychological ramifications of inequality. An argument we make, and we're not the first to make this, this argument, uh, is that inequality is a terrible thing. And there's all of this evidence showing it's corrosive, Uh, effects. But in reality, people actually are not upset by, by wealth inequality. Um, what they're upset is by fairness, by, sorry, by unfairness. And they're often correlated. So if you and I do the same amount of work and you make a lot more money, um, that's both unequal and unfair. But if you did much more work and made more money, then people don't tend to think that that's wrong. And, um, and there's all these studies showing that people are entirely content with unequal situations so long as they believe that there's been a f- procedural fairness, uh, maybe equality of opportunity, you might want to call it.
0: Isn't there always some shocking level of unfairness in the distribution of opportunities and talents? And this kind of goes to the issue of free will, but yep. no one can take real responsibility for any of the variables that allow them to take responsibility for anything else. You know, you didn't create your genes, you didn't create your parents, you're not you're not responsible for your intelligence, you're not responsible for the fact that you're not living in Syria right now, having every breath you take imperiled by the conflict around you. This can be said of even the most seemingly self-made person in a condition of real abundance. You have a rags to riches story, take place in America in the late 20th century, well, whoever that self-made person is, he didn't create the conditions of his opportunity. He was intelligent as he was, and he need only look to his left or right to find some poor schmuck who wasn't gifted with the same level of intelligence. And he can't account for the fact that he appeared at a moment in history where his intelligence could be used for, for something more than cannon fodder. and so. At a certain point, those differences, granted, many people don't, their conception of fairness doesn't reach that deep, but at a certain point, you'll see, and I think we're seeing that now, where information technology is magnifying the difference between good and bad luck, or the difference between great and, you know, just good luck across all these lines, and you're seeing concentrations of wealth that, at a certain point, have to be perceived as unacceptable to people who don't have everything they want. How are we going to feel when we have our first trillionaire, right, <laughs> given the,
1: the amount of need elsewhere in the world? So there, there are two separate issues here. They're both interesting. One is that I think when it comes to what bothers us, it's not necessarily disparity. It's actually issues more like poverty. So uh, the philosopher Henry Frankfurt, uh, the guy who wrote that wonderful book, uh, Bullshit, Um, On bullshit, yeah. On bullshit, yes. Um, uh, Gives a great example of that where he says the disparity between a millionaire and a billionaire is enormous, yet nobody's bothered by it, while the disparity between somebody making a good income in America versus someone on food stamps is a lot smaller, but it could drive us nuts. And he suggests that what's going on is we're not reacting to the proportion we're actually just reacting to the fact that in a world where it's not right to have a world where some people have abundance and others suffer.
0: Doesn't the research go the other way, where people's perception of their own abundance is always relative? I mean, once, once you get out of real poverty—I forget where the line is drawn there—but once you're, you're no longer living hand-to-mouth and you know money is considered no longer to be the reason why you're unhappy— then people begin to measure how well off they are purely in relative terms. So you have millionaires who feel poor in the presence of millionaires who have ten times the amount of money, and those people feel poor in the presence of billionaires, and these reference points begin to move, and people feel a real diminishment in their sense of well-being when they compare themselves to how well the people above them are doing.
1: I think that's exactly right. Um... H.L. Mencken said something to the effect of, "You know, a happy man is a man who makes hundred dollars more than his sister's husband's best friend." Right, right. You know, we're 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 comparative creatures, and the question of happiness. You're right. Um, we tend to look at other people, and we and, and compare ourselves relative to them. Once we're out of poverty, we compare ourselves relative to them, um, and and that's a separate question than the question of our intuitions about what's right and what's wrong. Hmm. So you may be unhappy with your state in the world, but still assume that it's fair and just, um, are, you know, con- conversely, uh, you, you, you may have other views about the morality that, that coincide in different ways with your happiness, but it's true. We do, we, we do endlessly compare. I think one of the good things, this takes a different time. One of the good things of a society like ours is that there are multiple modes of comparison, Uh, Will Wilkinson's made this point, which is, you know, maybe you make more money than me, but, you know, but I'm better at croquet. You have more Instagram followers. Uh, That's right. That's right. So that's right. So you, you have a lot more Twitter followers, but, uh, but my kids do better at school. You know, um, you're, you're in better shape, but I publish in nature, whatever, you know, so, so you go back and, and many people There are some people who are just at the bottom of everything, very unfortunate, but. I know a lot of people who have a lot more money than me, but I have other things which I'm proud of. Mm. And and a good society, just like a good society doesn't review, reduce everything to politics, um, in a good society, you can, I think, eke out happiness and satisfaction by finding a niche. You could not make much money and not much have, have much social status, but be part of a soccer team that you're really proud of and your friends think well of you and you guys are doing pretty well. Mm. And it's stuff like that that make a life. I mean, the other point I wanted to get before this before forgetting is you, there's a difference in normative and a descriptive. So you're exactly right that in some way, the person who spent enormous amounts of effort working day and night using his natural gifts uh, to great do some great accomplishment now makes a lot of money. In some way, that's just luck. Mm. It's luck that they're smart. It's luck that they're born into this world that they allowed them to do this. It's luck that they had the whatever tenacity to work hard. I mean, the ability, there's no in principle difference between being the sort of person who works very hard and being the sort of person who's tall. Right. It's just, it's just the way things, the way things go. That's the sort of philosophical argument that bears on determinism, on questions of free will and so on. But people don't think that way. So, so everybody your not just your average person, but I think just about all of us. When we think about it, we tend to view issues like effort as somehow stepping aside of the deterministic realm,
0: or common sense dualists in that case. That's right, and that's right, and that's that's a phrase I believe you've used elsewhere.
1: I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't congratulate you for uh, for how tall you are, or you know, the color of your hair, but I would praise you and feel you deserve reward for hard work. Just like you deserve to be uh, to be dismissed if you slack off and you don't care, and same with moral choices.
0: Right. It's not necessarily crazy though, because the difference in the kind of effort people make. I mean, certainly when you look at what it means to or how one raises children is amenable to influence through praise and blame and and cajoling and all the rest. So you can't praise someone so that they grow an inch in height. That's right. But you can praise them in a way that manages to make them expend more effort than they would otherwise, but still the the limitations on their effort is just as much of a fact, a determined fact of them as their height is. It's just that it can change from day to day and it can be influenced to whatever degree by interactions with with other people and and with the world. It's easy to see how we put things like effort and and moral compunction in a different category, but it's still anchored at every moment to this mysterious fact that the person is simply the way he or she is, and no other way. you know you're exactly five, nine, and you have exactly the amount of discipline you have in this moment. You're exactly as persuadable as you are by argument in this
1: moment and not a a micron more right, and that's and and right, so um i I, I struggle as to whether to go as far as you on this um. But you could say that it's not a coincidence that we hold people responsible for traits and actions that are precisely the traits and actions that, through praise and blame, we can modify.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um,
1: and, and, and so in some way, uh, it, we... we, we a lot of our, our assumptions about choice and about what's out of uh, causal control, what's in a person's hands, is shaped by the sort of social utility of imagining that it's so. I mean, part of what you're saying a little bit brings us back to the question of empathy and even understanding, even cognitive empathy for um, for others, particularly others who do things you think are terrible. Like a lot of people think it was terrible for people to vote for Trump. Or just about everybody, for instance, thinks it was terrible for uh, the, the 9-11 terrorists to kill thousands of people. And so there's a temptation to say, well, we should figure out what's going on with these people. Good or bad, you just want to understand what's going on. It'll help you deal with them, help you uh, uh, cope with them, help you plan for them in the future. But there's an objection which never struck me as entirely crazy. And the objection is, if you really understand them very well, you will realize that if you were in their situation, if you were raised in their society with their beliefs, with their practices, you would do the same thing. How could it be otherwise? And then if you understand that, it's harder to hate them. And sometimes people want to be able to hate other people. And I think you've made similar claims with regard to determinism, that determinism blocks hatred. And I think cognitive empathy Can drive a sort of deterministic intuition that has the same consequences.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. That is one of the consequences of taking determinism seriously for me. But it's important to be clear that it it blocks hatred or it erodes the any kind of rational basis for hatred. But it doesn't block other motivating negative emotions. It doesn't block fear. You know, I, I can be terrified of a tornado without hating it the way I would hate an evil person who I was convinced was the the true author of his evil, right? So what cutting through the illusion of free will does is it turns the, the evil person into a tornado, but I can still be just as motivated to avoid or otherwise preempt the actions of a destructive force of nature without attributing free will to it.
1: If I remember right, you also say it doesn't block love. Right. And And... And I want to push back on this. Like here, here's the way I'm thinking, which is that, um, I don't know, if my friend murdered my children, I, I would hate him. But if I was truly to grasp determinism, I'd realize that that's just the way things went and I wouldn't hate. But then again, if my friend did something wonderful for me, uh, surprised me with a party or, or stood by my side at a difficult time, um, right now I'd feel gratitude, maybe love. But if I was a true determin- determinist, wouldn't that go too? So
0: love, in my view, doesn't—this actually brings us back to these ideal states of, of consciousness as advertised by Buddhist meditators—so love in the form of loving-kindness need not be taken in, in my view, by the illusion of free will, because it's not predicated on assigning ultimate agency to the, the one you love in the way that hatred is, is predicated on assigning blame to the, to the one you hate with love and kindness you you really just you want that person to be happy you want them to be relieved of suffering you want their hopes and dreams and aspirations realized you just you want you want to see that smile on their face because you know it correlates with a state of consciousness that you want for them
1: okay yeah okay
0: it doesn't matter if you understand that all of that's determined determinism doesn't erase the difference between misery and and bliss right and and what you want for, your, both for yourself and for others is more of the bliss and less of the misery
1: so i see the distinction but then you would agree with me that determinism would block gratitude for instance
0: it wouldn't block the gratitude i feel for the good thing being done if i'm in, in a car accident and the car is catching fire and people pull over and pull me out of the car given that I really don't want to be burned alive in my own car and I want to live a long, happy life thereafter, I have a huge preference for these people successfully getting me out of the car, and I'm hugely grateful for the fact that they succeeded, right? But if you then tell me, well, all of that was determined by their genes and their environment and their upbringing, and these people really couldn't do otherwise, it wasn't a matter of conscious thought, even, and if, when you talk to them, they'll say, yeah, I don't know why I did that. I just, you know, just found myself pulling over and pulling your door open, and I've never done anything like that in my life, so I really can't take credit for it. Even if introspectively they were disavowing any agency, my gratitude for the outcome is still huge. In that sense, I still think gratitude shows up, and I, and I think expressing gratitude would be just as natural, even if you were fully Disillusion to free will as it's really it's almost related to the the raping dolores koan. even if you know that there's there's no there there you are your intuitions are so successfully played upon by the circumstance we read agency into other people so effortlessly that it's always a, a kind of a second moment of philosophizing to take it out again, but I think you can be grateful for. The result without imagining that the person has any real deep responsibility for being the way they were. It's obvious if you just pay attention to to how you are in any moment and map that on to somebody else, how can you take responsibility that you are not radically different than you are? It is a given fact. You are no more responsible for any of these these things kind of at the micro moment level than you are for the fact that you were born in the first place.
1: I'm convinced by this that some aspect of gratitude is saved, but some isn't. So if you give me a wonderful birthday gift, I could feel grateful because I'm happy to be in possession of that gift. I'm I feel good that this event has ensued. But but gratitude in a deeper sense is I'm gratitude towards you.
0: But see the object, the focus of your gratitude is not so much that I could have done otherwise, right? I could have not given you a gift and yet decided to give you a gift. You are, the connection between us is not merely that choice point, which, you know, let's say that was determined since the time of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. The fact that I spent the time to give you this gift means that I actually am thinking about you and I like you and I, I took time out of my day to shop for it. That was one of my priorities. For whatever reason, you and i are connected in that way it correlates with a a conscious state on my side okay, good, that you that you good. find that you understand to be valuable and when you map it back on to you to you when you, when you think of what would i have to feel for a person to have done likewise well i would have to feel like that person was a real priority for me the connection is is built up across that you know mirroring which is it seems to me does actually Float free of any notion of what is the ultimate cause of any of this.
1: No, I like that. Um, I, I I've wrote an Atlantic article a little while ago about the notion of choice and 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 how could we talk coherently about choice? Because we have to talk coherently about choice. There's a world of difference between you giving me a gift because you thought well of me versus somebody held a gun to your head. Mm. And law and philosophy and common sense has to observe that difference. But you're right in saying the difference surely can't be cashed out in one case you could have done otherwise, in other case you couldn't have. Rather, I think the way to think about it is there's different psychological processes involved. And, um, and, and then it makes sense then, regardless of whether or not one's a determinist, um, you could be grateful to a person for giving you a gift if what led to the giving of the gift was the right set of psychological processes, warm feelings, some interest, and so on. And so, so, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm persuaded that in that way. Gratitude can be consistent with determinism.
0: Yeah, well, and you are persuaded through no free will of your own, I might add. Oh, free will okay. humor never gets stale. But yes, a bad joke on one level, but the truth is, if you actually introspect in this moment, your experience of being persuaded to whatever degree that you are is totally compatible with the absence of free will. I mean, do you feel like you are the author of your Persuasion and persuadability in this moment—it's a completely mechanical fact of what I said was as persuasive as it was, for whatever reason, to you.
1: I'm enough of a psychologist to to believe that it's a purely mechanistic process. And what else could it be? Um, my phenomenology is uncertain mm-hmm. as to as to whether as the extent to which I have the experience of choice, and and I don't—I'm—I'm I'm not as confident as you that phenomenological experience is typically absent. But your your mileage may vary on this. There are ways to be confused about this. So for instance, you could
0: you could know of an exercise, say, that would make you more persuadable, right? There could be some, you know, thought experiment or some way of prepping yourself for a conversation like this, which would, let's say, double the effect of whatever I say that you might find persuasive, right? And you could have thought of that 30 seconds ago and seemingly through the exercise of your own agency said, well, I'm going I'm to do this thing, which is going to give me a doubly open mind right now. And now, now what Sam is saying, oh, I, actually, that's starting to make more sense than it did last time around. But again, let's say all that's true. Let's say you know of such a trick and you can open your mind more than is usually opened and you decide to do it now. And I convince you of my thesis to a double degree and you say that's that's in some sense you're doing right well again the mystery just recedes a little bit more so it's like you you can't explain the fact that it occurred to you to do that right it might not have occurred to you to do that you might have forgotten that you knew this trick and had the conversation along normal lines and you can't explain the fact that that trick works to the degree that it does and no further you know and not a bit less not a bit more all of these are just like your height again for me when i pay attention that's actually phenomenologically vivid uh. to me. This is not the Humean moment where when it comes time for lunch, philosophy goes out the window and I'm, I you know, eat like any ordinary ape. When I pay attention, I actually can't make sense of the claim for free will. Like I, I can't, the, the idea that I could have done otherwise, right? So again, yeah. down to like trying to complete this sentence, right? The idea that I could have not paused, there, right? Or paused, or, or found myself pausing twice as long. That's just that's an idea that doesn't map on to the experience. The experience is what it is, and again, it's like the experience of just more and more height right? It's just, yeah, yeah. I'm 5'9", I'm 5'9", I'm 5'9", again, and here I got to the end of the sentence.
1: You know, I agree with that. There's there's a wonderful passage at the beginning of Ian McEwan's book, Atonement, mm. um, which I cite in my, my first book, Descartes' Baby, my first trade book. Um, and 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 I don't remember it off by heart, but it's about her, his main character, I think Brioni, trying to figure out, to experience holding at her hand and deciding whether to squeeze it, and trying to experience the moment of decision to squeeze it, and finding it inseparable from the squeezing itself. And 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 it's true. It's an interesting exercise, maybe almost a meditative exercise. That that as you sort of try to drill deep into it, you can never find this point where you step outside, um, the sort of uh, causal nature of things.
0: It's also intrinsically mysterious when you look at just when you experience, you know, opening and closing your hand and you ask, how do you do that, right? There is no there is no how of doing that. You, you can initiate it. You, your brain produces a model of the likely effects of its ensuing motor output, so there's clearly an expectation formed that your hand is going to move in a certain way, and if it, if it moved differently, you would be surprised. There's an error detection mechanism coming online. So there's some... There's some expectation of what the output will be, but when you actually just try to get a handle on what you as the conscious witness of your experience are doing when you move your hand, what are you doing? I mean, that's just, that is as mysterious a thing as can be found anywhere. You do not have any insight into what you are doing.
1: No, that's totally right. I, I see this at a broader level where um, <laughs> it's, it's similar to your example of ending a sentence, which is I often, I, I almost always don't know what I'm going to say until I start to speak. Mm. And then I just speak and speak, and then um, I discover what I'm about to say and what my views are. And and there's no prior mechanism right, which I set into motion. Um, it's just the, the, the phenomenology is very interesting here and kind of slippery. My my own interest has been to, um, well, in part to make the point that what we're saying, this deterministic worldview, is entirely compatible with the idea of reason and rationality and deliberation. Once you recognize that these are just yet other deterministic processes. Yeah, and many yeah. many psychologists get this mixed up. I, I've seen more than a few people say, well, look, you're in favor of reasoning and rationality, but it's just a determined universe. And it's a non sequitur. That is the most
0: frustrating retort I ever get. I and mean, this just drives me crazy. I think I talked about this somewhere. It's, on, it's either on my previous podcast or maybe may on my, the, the meditation app that I, am, I keep threatening to release. Someday it will be out there. But I talk about free will on it. And, but this retort that without free will, there's no such thing as reason. Even Noam Chomsky is taken in by this find a youtube video of at the end of one of his lectures someone asked him about free will he said of course we have free will it makes no sense to think otherwise because if there's no free will it's all just physically determined and then there's no reason to reason about anything there's no such thing as reasoning it's all just you know atoms in the void if anything reason is a perfect example of the absence of free will i mean reason makes slaves of us all if i show you the rational steps to reach a conclusion, you will helplessly reach that conclusion. You will be you will be forced by the the constraints of the reason you and I hold in common to reach the same conclusion, whether you like it or not. And that's what it is to be to be reasoning,
1: yeah, I mean, one way which I put it, I think, in my book is you can imagine two computers. Um, one just chugs through logical formulae and 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 goes through various steps. The other ones, does is emotional in the sense it's random, it's biased and so on. And because we stipulated their computers, we have no problem seeing them as deterministic machines. Well, the question for humans is just which computer are we? I mean, an answer obviously is both, but mm-hmm. to what extent are we to one or the other? Uh, but, but right. So, so as you're framing it, Chomsky makes the inference, um, from reason, uh, to free will. Um, I have colleagues who make the inference from no free will to no reason. He was making that and, inference as and, well. And, yeah. and 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 it's just it's it's just this bizarre. It's 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 quite a serious confusion, I think, because it keeps people from from thinking. It, it leads people, at least in my field, to to quagmires like, oh, we must only be slaves of the emotion, and we can never be rational liberators. It's, it's where um, kind of the worst excesses of psychology meet with the worst excesses of, you know, bad philosophy. Just to spell
0: this out, I think it's an important point and people may not have gotten it at the first pass. If you understand that two plus two equals four, that's not a choice, right? You've got no choice. The moment you understand that, you understand it and you can't see it otherwise. If you don't understand it, that's also not a choice. If you mistakenly believe that two plus two equals five and you are attempting to, quote, reason that way, well, then that's not freedom either. Down neither path do you exercise any kind of freedom. You're just either correctly adding or incorrectly adding.
1: Right. I mean, I've also seen the flip side to opposite mistake, which is in discussions of AI and robotics, I often hear people say, well, they can, you know, do things in a rational way, but they can never have emotions and the, the the intuition here is a different sort of intuition which is to have an emotion to make a spontaneous choice is something sort of magical and and separate from the sort of things that machines can do and so much of my work as a psychologist have been you know reinforcing and developing the idea that that mechanistic causal systems like our brain um can do all sorts of things. It can have qualitative experiences, it can do emotions, but it can do reason. And as you point out, you know, the steps of reason are, are it, you know, unavoidable, causal, determined steps, just like everything else.
0: Especially reason, from a subjective point of view, the fact that you're conforming to some principles that you didn't just make up is what it feels like to be moving stepwise toward a conclusion that is valid. Right. There are experiences you have where you do sort of feel like there are no constraints, right? Let's say you're you're an abstract painter and you're not even you're not even trying to represent what's in front of you. You're just you're just moving paint on the canvas. Well then I I can see how people feel like, well, you know, this is me. I'm doing everything. There's no this is just pure creativity. But to have your mind changed by a process of reasoning, to have an insight, you know, forced upon you by steps where you didn't you didn't know where you were going to wind up, that is as coercive as thinking ever gets. And the idea that that somehow that's the litmus test for freedom of will, the ability to do that is kind of a rather thrilling instance of not following the plot.
1: No, I agree. I mean, another way to put it is I turn my head and I see my coffee cup, and I say, "Well, there's my coffee cup." And that seems like the most determined thing in the world. Often reasoning is just like that. Yeah. You know, you, you, you tell me I had one, then I had another, and I say, well, that's two. And it does, it does not feel spontaneous or creative. Phenomenologically, it feels, there's a feeling that just follows. And so, so there's no argument there. So
0: there's another area I want to get to with you. I'm now aware that we've been talking for nearly two hours. So to the limits of your patience, I'd like you to explore with me a bunch of related issues here we can talk about it through the lens of politics and the recent election but there's much more here there's just there's the the problem of persuading other people and the, the obvious limits to persuading people politically morally in really any way that matters and then we have all of these features of our lives now that make persuasion both so important and and so fraught so we have the you know social media which on any given day, I either think it's destroying the world or it's essential to it on some level, or fake news, which is yeah. obviously related to the rise of social media. There's some some stories in the news of late that I wanted to get your reaction to. So, And this does actually relate to empathy pretty directly. Here's one moment that ties all of this together. So... I don't know if you've been watching this with the same morbid curiosity I have, but but Romney's Hmm. return to the fold and his seeming efforts to ingratiate himself enough so as to possibly be Trump's Secretary of State, I look at this, and obviously Romney is in good or or bad company. You've got people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, all all of these people early on in the campaign said in the starkest possible terms. That Trump could not be present, he was either on Rubio's account unfit to be given the nuclear codes. Cruz called him a pathological liar and and Romney probably went further than anyone and and he was certainly earlier than anyone in saying that he was a con man and a fraud and and referenced Trump University with all the the moral opprobrium appropriate to that and Now you see these guys turn. I mean, I find this so sickening and I feel like my my own empathic or, you know, merely emotional circuits are being played upon to an inappropriate degree. When I look at these guys, they disgust me. You know, I'm taken in by the illusion of free will here, right? Right. But it's just it's like this is exactly who I would never want to be, right? Someone who is just in the most fawning way attempting to ingratiate himself to mere power, power which he appropriately recognized early on was going to be wielded by by someone who didn't at all deserve it, right? And there's no exculpatory story about why they had this change of heart. It's not like Romney can say, well listen, I got to know Trump better. I had a long conversation with him. And he actually proved to me that he's incredibly well informed about the world. And that his campaign didn't at all represent who the man is. Even just speaking those sentences would make some process of reforming his views about Trump understandable and, and therefore morally acceptable. But what seems to have happened here is just a purely opportunistic or fear-driven acquiescence to power, and I just find it sickening. Now, the way this ties back to social media is so, I was on Twitter last night. There's a New Yorker article entitled something like, you know, the, the humiliation of Mitt Romney. And I tweeted it out. And in the spirit of condemning him, I tweeted something like, you know, hopefully he's wearing his magic underpants. So, it was a dig against Mormons, which, given my job description, is entirely fair. <laughs> but I, I happened to look at my at mentions after I tweeted it, which I don't always do. In the New Yorker article, there were two interpretations of what Romney's doing. And one was the one I just gave, hence the notion of his humiliation. But the other was that actually this was not an abject and opportunistic cozying up to power. This was actually a heroic act of self sacrifice. He recognizes that because of how incompetent Trump is and because of the incompetence he's surrounding himself with, Romney decided that you know he's a, he he would actually be doing the country a lot of good by getting into a position of power he wants to be in a position to do some good because he actually is a reasonably competent person the person on twitter said well wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to actually have the charitable interpretation here and I was just immediately embarrassed to have sent that tweet and i just said absolutely i deleted the tweet i promoted the, this person's criticism of my tweet in that case social media and I, I really think Twitter is just the worst of the worst of social media, was functioning for me as a morally clarifying machine. So anyway, I open that to you. You've got Trump, you've got Romney, you've got social media. You have anything you want to say about our current moment?
1: Wow, there's a lot there. So so first, um, <laughs> it's always reassuring to see that your rejection of free will uh, leaves you still leaves you fully <laughs> capable of moral <laughs> moral disapproval of the strongest level. Yeah. Um, second, it's even worse than you put it because it's not only true that all of these people said terrible things about Trump. Trump said terrible things about all of these people. Mm. He, uh, he 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 uh, uh, belittled the looks of Ted Cruz's wife. He associated Ted Cruz's father with the murder of JFK. Um, yeah. he, um, in response to Romney's criticism, he made a crude reference to Romney being on his knees in front of him, uh, when he begged for money. I mean, you know, so I, I honestly don't, I, 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 I like your charitable interpretation. Um, I am, which would apply to Mitt Romney, but I, I am cynical enough about politicians and I've seen this so often, um, that um i think a useful baseline default is just to assume that people don't mean what they say in that realm hmm. and that and that there, there's there's a high level of personal ambition and power
0: but i don't understand how the ambition take the case of romney i mean romney is a by any objective measure a very successful person he's he's a wealthy person he doesn't need the job in any sense and i would think he would purely For egocentric reasons, I would think he would more want to preserve his dignity, his sense of himself, his sense of his having been right the first time, and rather than just simply have the job of being secretary of state, I don't see how it's worth the sacrifice along egocentric lines.
1: I worry that you're illustrating some of the weaknesses of cognitive empathy, where you're importing your own moral views and set of priorities onto another person. I mean, I've had these discussions with people who say, look, Trump is not going to be motivated um, in order to make more money. He has plenty of money. Why would he ever want to make more money? And it's true for, for the person saying it, mm-hmm. you know, a million dollars would be enough. But, um, but, but other people work different ways. I would suspect that, I mean, again, you may be right. But I would suspect that Mitt Romney, a, a politician and, and in some way, to be fair, in all accounts, a decent man, I think, who comported himself very well when he was running for office, um, really wants to have an incredibly powerful political position. And if he doesn't, if he's not secretary of state, he's consigned into irrelevance. And so um, I could really see that this is the sort of thing that one might sell your soul over. I have to say since 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 I'm since you know we're kind of trashing people, or at least I am in this way. Um, I have to say in the whole miserable two thousand sixteen election season, some people acquitted themselves very well. And I'm thinking particularly of conservative uh, pundits and intellectuals, yeah. Like Jonah Goldberg and Bill Kristol. Yeah. Who yeah. um who recognize they, they they in all regards behave like people of principle where they have conservative principles they they recognize Trump accorded with none of them, and they broke with the Republican Party and with a lot of their Twitter followers and friends and fans, to point out what a a narcissistic buffoon Trump was and they've and many and they and they have paid a price, and so so it it, it it's a sort of it, of all the awfulness it has demonstrated that people can um show integrity in certain ways and it's it's been a good sign i got to say as somebody who me who's who's developed much of his career arguing that people are basically rational and we have rational powers and rational capacities and we are ultimately creatures of reason this this has been a rough election season this yeah. has been this has been you know for somebody saying how smart people basically are and fundamentally good and fundamentally uh reasonable um this is as close to falsification that i've ever experienced but i'll make one point which which actually comes out in some extent as a response to people i respect a lot like john Haidt, who who point out our political weirdnesses as examples of our fundamental irrationality and the point i want to make is we're at our very worst when it comes to national politics if you want to see people being outrageously stupid, check here,
0: mm.
1: because for several reasons. One is because um, the, the consequences of your action, your vote, your, the, the, the poster you're holding up, the thing you post on Facebook is, in an objective sense, infinitesimally small. Um, if, 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 I, you know, if I go around, I tell a pollster that Obama was born in Kenya, and I shout that at a meeting and everything, it doesn't matter. All it is, all its function is, is signaling to other people my affiliation. It could be virtue signaling. It could be group signaling. My, my bet, by the way, is that most of the people who claim to believe that Obama was born uh, in Kenya were just saying, boo Obama.
0: You heard about Pizzagate, right? I actually
1: have not heard about Pizzagate.
0: I talked about this on, a, on my last podcast, based on the WikiLeaks, John Podesta email dump, Mm -hmm. there was a mention of a pizza parlor in D.C. that these people frequented, and one of these fake news stories said that John Podesta and Hillary Clinton are running a child sexual slavery ring out of this pizza parlor, right?
1: That sounds plausible enough. Go on.
0: That's plausible enough that people actually believe it to the point where they have made endless death threats on the owners and employees of this pizza parlor. Right, and and put photos of their kids online and it's just been a nightmare for the people who work there. Now, I gotta think that someone who is actually talking about Pizzagate and going so far as to make death threats, this is not just boo hillary, this is yeah. this kind of conspiracy thinking, it just reaches so far. I mean, I know people who've been completely absorbed by the you know, nine eleven truth conspiracy thinking, right? So where they they'll spend all of their disposable time online, getting deeper and deeper into this, into the minutia there. They're not just still saying, you know, at a removal of 15 years, boo Bush and boo Cheney. They think this is true on some level.
1: So I agree. There's going to be a minority of people who, honest to God, believe in all manner of conspiracy theories. And they believe it as, as much as they believe that they live in a house down the road and as much as they, they believe basic facts about the world. I just think that that's a minority. And there's a bit of evidence supporting this. So so another study, uh, there was a poll done, at, and this is before Donald Trump ran for president, um, where they asked people, do you think Donald Trump was born in the United States? And a big chunk said no. And I think they were just saying, boo Trump. I mean, there are polls where they ask people, "Do you think Ted Cruz is a Zodiac killer?"
0: Hmm. And
1: an alarmingly high percentage of people say yes, even though it seems implausible. You don't think they're just goofing on the on the question, there? So that's the thing. So I think that there that there's um, there's a blurring of the line between, on the one hand, kind of believing it, on the other hand, sort of saying, "Let's just say this because it sounds good," hmm. and goofing on the question. Somebody who goes to the trouble of, I don't know, putting a bomb at the pizza place or some threat probably is, is, is deranged. But I bet a lot of the people who put this on Facebook or tweet it, whatever, have kind of a, a, um, an unclear relationship to the truth that they're not necessarily believing this is a truth claim as opposed to something that's fun to say that could be true. I'll give you an example. Actually, I'll give you, um, an example that has to do with you. Um, a guy, a friend of mine on Facebook, uh, made a certain argument and he attributed to you a view. I knew you didn't hold. Mm. Um, it was, it was, it was sort of a misquote. It wasn't terrible. It was a mild misquote. So I wrote to my friend and I said, you know, you should take that down. Cause, it, Cause you got him wrong. Here's the real quote. You got him wrong. And my friend didn't say, oh, I screwed up. He said something like, yeah, but that's the kind of thing that atheists would say. And, you know, and I think a lot of this is, fine, uh, Trump maybe isn't, bo- sorry, Obama isn't born in Kenya. But, you know, he's Kenyan. He's not American in his attitudes. So let's not quibble about the details. And the argument I would make is you could get away with this sort of nonsense in the political realm because it doesn't really matter. It's like my views on evolution. If I post, if, if I say I'm creationist on Facebook or, or an Azure pollster, unless I'm, it doesn't matter. So the claim would be, that I would make is when people deal with local politics or local interactions, they're far more sensitive to the truth. They're far more rational. My claim would be that a small town, a small town hall meeting where you're arguing about sidewalks and traffic lights and who's going to pay for, you know, for, for the, the, the new wall in the church, people are much more rational and reasoned. Well, when it comes to national politics, it's all virtue signaling and nonsense
0: that's actually a distinction i never thought of that that there is the locality of it might matter in how people are thinking or or in the ways their statements about what they believe track what they they actually believe i got to say the 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 post truth aspect to this election has been the most disturbing for me i mean just just the fact that all of us is encapsulated by trump himself the fact that he lies to a degree that But for bearing witness to it, I would have thought it was totally impossible. I mean, it's impossible to even parody how dishonest he is. And the fact that there's no consequence to that, that the people who were supporting him don't seem to care that he is speaking without any concern for the believability of what he's saying, right? He's contradicting himself. He's contradicting just terrestrial facts. He's, You brought up Frankfurt. He is actually doing exactly what Frankfurt described, you know, technically as bullshitting. The difference between bullshit and lying is that when you're lying, you actually have to keep the truth in view so as to to successfully lie. You have to be you have to be anticipating the logical expectations of your audience and inserting your lie in the space provided in a way that fits with the rest of what you and your audience understand to be factual. That, I mean, that's the only way you get away with a lie. If you're bullshitting, you're just, you're just completely unaware of what the truth is and or what the expectations of your audience are, and you just say whatever you want to say, regardless of whether it, it survives any kind of reality testing. And that's why, and there's a great line in, in Frankfurt's essay, that the bullshitter is a greater enemy of the truth than the liar is for that, for that very reason. He's just, he's not even assuming the cognitive overhead necessary to be aware that the truth exists or that anyone has an expectation that your utterances would conform to it. And that's what I found so shocking about Trump. He's just, he is, every inch of him is a bullshitter. Not only did he not pay a penalty for this, you could argue that he won because of it, and there's something, there was something so nihilistic about the way in which people would revel in his dishonesty, and people revel in the fact that the New York Times, with its errors, is now more, more or less interchangeable with a website that gets invented by some maniac who's just making up fake news stories and people just have lost any ability to discriminate. So, Like, Breitbart is just as good as the the Washington Post because the Washington Post has made a mistake. Who can judge whether, you know, one is a more reputable enterprise? You know, I think that the effects of this are really far-reaching for us and and are, are more significant than the ascendancy of Trump.
1: I agree. I think we've had politicians before who were indifferent to the truth, but never to the extent of Trump. And the problem is he won. Yeah, and so it's it's not clear. I mean, you know, have people pointed out that I am I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Romney putting his dog on the roof of his car and possibly bullying a kid in high school were these major scandals. Yeah. While you know you have a man who openly boasts of a sexual assault, and and people are just this may not be the last Trump we see in our lifetime, and and it's but let me but let me throw so I, I, I because I agree with everything you're saying. Let me throw an alternative interpretation, which isn't necessarily a disagreement, but it's a way of framing things. And it's a quote, but I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember who said this first. Some guy in Atlantic said, essentially, people like you and me took Trump literally, but not mm-hmm. seriously, while his supporters took him seriously, but not literally. He'd make a claim, I'm going to build this wall, and we get all agitated and say, oh, can you afford it? Where That doesn't make any sense. It's the wrong size. Well, his supporters listened to him and said, and basically he's, what he's saying is, I care about border security. And this is like a first foray into thinking about it. And that just about everything Trump says shouldn't be taken as based on its truth value, as if you were talking to a normal person or even a normal hmm. politician, but rather as some sort of expression of value. It's, it's as, if I, as if I said to, to, my, to my friend, oh, I would die for you. Well, maybe yeah, I wouldn't die for them. It's a nice thing to say. And, and if you, I, the only way I can make sense of, of the many people who supported Trump and continue to support him is they don't actually care about the truth, values, utterances, as opposed to the sort of the spirit behind them. It's a cute quote, the
0: seriously but not literally and literally but not seriously, but try to map it on to reality. So what does it mean to have taken him seriously but not literally when he excoriated you know goldman sachs and hillary's alliances there and now has just hired a bunch of goldman sachs people into his cabinet right where will the people who took him seriously but not literally start to be offended by his choices to not honor the things he literally said he would do during the campaign you could imagine him reversing right. everything i don't know i don't know that he will I, mean, I, I certainly hope he reverses most of his things he could turn out to be a great president if he did but I mean, just imagine if he had literally said he was going to bring those coal jobs back, right? Yes. But that was, just, that was just meant to be taken seriously, but not literally. What he's really going to do is argue that we just need more solar panels, right? And he's going yeah. to be as environmentally correct as any Democrat. At some point, you have to admit that the people who were taking him seriously were really only taking him seriously because they were taking some measure of what he was promising literally.
1: Yeah, I mean, as somebody who, who uh, disagrees with just about everything Trump has proposed, um, it's the only thing that reassures me about Trump is, well, two things. One thing is, he has absolutely no principles. There's nothing he seems to care about at all. Um, and the second thing is he never keeps his promises. Hmm. But I'm I'm obviously not a Trump voter. I actually don't know how Trump voters are going to come to deal with the sort of the blatant hypocrisy that you just pointed out. Or the indifference. It it may be that there are some things he will have to um, he will have to abide by. Maybe some degree of anti immigration policy. He's still doing speech acts that are sort of encouraging his base, like uh, you know people who burn American flags should lose their citizenship, right? Which seem to be you know carefully you know for the, the, the tweet perfectly orchestrated to enrage you, me, and the New York Times, and to please everybody else. So let me ask you something. Um, I've, 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 like a lot of people, I've tried to make sense of basically why did Trump win. And there's one explanation I've heard so many times, but I haven't heard much data, which is that a lot of Trump supporters were rebelling against what they saw of as ridicule by liberal elites um Hillary Clinton's comment about deplorables is the big example but the fact that that so many people in America have been called racist and sexist and so on and ignorant and that the Trump vote was an FU to the to the sort of people who read the New Yorker you know and 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 live in places like uh, Cambridge and New Haven I've
0: commented on this before on the podcast I think there were several things that had any one of which been different would have sunk Trump, but they were all had the way they had to be in order to get him to win. So, I mean, I think one issue was the email server scandal, you know, the Clinton's choice to keep her email on the private server and her total inability to justify or sufficiently apologize for that. When I saw the reasons why people were just failing to make any kind of distinction between Trump and Clinton in, in moral terms, that piece alone was doing such heavy lifting. So whenever I would talk about Trump's lack of qualification, say, or, or his dishonesty, people would immediately go to, well, Hillary is a criminal. Right? You are voting for someone who belongs in prison. There are people in prison for years for doing less than what Hillary has admitted to doing. End of analysis, right? The moral outrage I got directed at me on that point, it was unbelievable, right? And that was just one point. But it was just, it was a perfect inoculation against seeing Trump to be worse than Hillary in terms of his qualifications for office.
1: I've always thought of that because you hear that a lot. And of course, Comey's, uh, the treatment of the FBI at the time, yep. maybe played an important role, maybe made the difference. Um I, I've often wondered whether that is sort of a, again, to go back to John Haidt, whether the email server was really played a role in people voting against Clinton and for Trump, or rather it was the sort of polite way you could say it, which is, if I made up my mind to vote for Trump, despite all of the accusations, all of the problems, and someone challenges it on me, mm-hmm. challenges me on this, I could say, well, Hillary Clinton may well have committed a felony. Right. and. That's a plausible enough point, but I guess I wonder, and maybe the right polling could kind of parse this out whether that's really made a difference, as opposed to being a ready statement to justify a feeling you already had.
0: That's possible, but there are just a few things like that that were so. I was hearing the same language thrown at me, and you could just see that it was just the product of an echo chamber. Where, and this this came rather later in the campaign, but once. Russia's involvement in Syria became more obvious to people and more relevant in the campaign. People were saying that Hillary wanted to start World War III with the Russians, right? Because Hillary advocated a no-fly zone in Syria, she was determined to get us into a literally a nuclear Armageddon with Russia. So a choice for Hillary is a choice for World War III, right? And this captured a lot of I think former Bernie people, yeah, the common isolationist impulse was magnified by this stark choice between the man who will say nice things about Putin and get us That's out right. of foreign wars and the woman who seemed eager to get into yet another war in the middle east and very likely a shooting war with russia obviously none of that related to a a sensible analysis of what clinton was likely to do as a matter of foreign policy but i take your point i just think the other thing that I really felt myself was how offensive and dangerous and counterproductive it was that Hillary and you know Obama before her could never say anything honest about Islamism and jihadism and the relationship between actual religious beliefs and behavior and so the fact that all you got were euphemisms and sanctimony and bullying and accusations of racism on this point from the Democrats, I think that alone also, had that been different, would have eroded a sufficient amount of Trump support to to give us a different result. I mean, Clinton's campaign was basically, don't be racist, right? And that just doesn't cut it. When you have people being slaughtered in the capitals of Europe, you know, every few months, and then it starts to happen here, and where we have a presidential election.
1: You you might be right. I mean, to some extent, you're seeing the election as we're all apt to do through the lens of what interests you the most, and, and 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 the theme of of sort of terrorism and and global conflict is something which which you've done a lot of work on. I'm not sure that mattered that much to the voters. The exit polls don't seem to reflect that much of an interest. But I think what you're saying no,
0: but it actually does. I mean, the the exit polls I saw that the people who voted overwhelmingly for Trump were not the people who said the economy was their first concern. There were people who said terrorism was their first concern. Again, I I also have a, a unique viewpoint here because I would say very negative things about Trump and very tepidly supportive things about Clinton as the lesser evil and get, even in my own social media networks, I'm not exaggerating, like a hundred to one criticism. Again, I think my audience is probably not more than 20% Trump voters, but they were so much more energized than Clinton voters. And this point got raised again and again and again. I mean, these two points, she's a criminal, and I can't believe you don't see that Trump is the only one who can keep us safe from jihadism.
1: I think a lot of this gets, I mean, you you may be right. I mean, it may connect well with issues of jihadism, but I think a lot of it connects oddly enough with the phrase that Trump often uses of political correctness, of saying things as they are.
0: Just to be clear here, the issue with jihadism is a subset of this larger issue of, as you just said, political correctness. And so like Black Lives Matter was the other piece here. So the fact that Clinton couldn't say anything reasonable about the politics of race, or a kind of honest analysis of, of what was happening at the level of, you know, police violence and the misuse of violence. That was also another side of this. And so the law and order side was just the domestic side of the, the war on terrorism side. And, and, and Trump could speak in politically incorrect terms about this that people recognize to be true. I mean, yes, there is a greater problem of violent crime in the black community than the white community. This is a fact. And to call people racist for acknowledging this fact is just deeply offensive and counterproductive thing to do politically. And that's all that Clinton did.
1: So in some ways, some of the the issues with Clinton, so Trump is a creature all by himself. And and. Issues that normally hobble Republicans, um, say the need to say we actually have smaller government or whatever. Were, Trump was uninterested in. Trump was his own thing, mm. but Clinton was was a Democrat, and and a lot of what you're saying may well be true and may have cost her votes. But but if it was a, if it was Biden, uh, I'm not sure it'd be much different. If it was Tim Kaine running, I think the same issues would come out. I mean, one thing the, the exit polls are interesting because. There's only subtleties that people are fascinated by. So one subtlety, and uh, Scott Alexander, Slate Star Codex, points this out that that more uh, more African Americans and Hispanics, proportion wise, voted for Trump than they did for Romney. Mm. So so it surprised many people, but but we tend to forget basics when thinking about these things. Looking at the data, the biggest predictor of who of who somebody votes for is whether a Democrat or Republican. Right. Now, right. of course, we're fascinated by the margins who voted for Obama, but changed their mind and voted for Trump. And so, and and that's what wins elections. But basically American politics roughly falls into two tribes. And unless there's a pressing reason you, you vote for the person from your group
0: Yeah,
1: and, um, and, and the Hillary weaknesses that cost her votes are just standard democratic weaknesses. And, um, and it's possible she may have done better. Um, but but it was a very unusual election.
0: We actually have some neuroimaging results that we're just now finally going to publish. It took forever. I probably shouldn't go into in, in such great detail because they're, they're not published yet. But we scan people's brains in a paradigm where we tried to change their political beliefs in real time by presenting counter evidence versus you know ordinary non-political beliefs. So the ordinary beliefs were of a sort where we thought they would be very open to being persuaded that they, their default position was wrong, whereas obviously the political beliefs we thought would be more resistant to change, and that, of course, is exactly what we found. It was very similar to the presenting evidence against religious beliefs, which we had done in a previous study. I remember that work. I mean, the difference there was we, we weren't looking at an attempt to persuade in real time, and so here we have the the neuroanatomy of both being persuaded and not being persuaded on some level. But political affiliation is a lot like religion. You know, it's just, it is a, for many people, it is a non-negotiable. And that, as you, as you said before, what is what was so refreshing about seeing certain prominent Republicans, you know, like, you know, the editors of the Wall Street Journal yep, and the National Review and... Weekly Standard. Yeah. People who had a lot to lose break ranks and say, this guy is unacceptable. And that's what's so galling about seeing Cruz working. the. I mean, there's a lot that's galling about Cruz. But to see him be attacked, humiliated, beaten by someone who he openly recognized to be a, a menace, then see him working the phone banks, you know, trying to get him elected. (laughs) No, this horrible. This horrible. (laughs) It's got to win some kind of prize for the the most brutal photograph.
1: This actually goes back to what you said about Romney, which is you would have felt better about Romney if he said, well, you know, I spoke to Trump and I realized I was mistaken about this and, and he's stronger in that and everything. I sometimes think of the whole point of what things like this happen is it has to be some act of abject humiliation. And it's not humiliating enough if you ground it in reason. If Romney explained, now I support Trump for the following six reasons. What do you
0: mean it has to be an act of humiliation?
1: I think I think Trump wanted to humiliate Romney.
0: That will be interesting, because by the time we release this podcast, it may in fact have happened. But when we're recording this, we don't yet know who he's picked for yes. Secretary of State.
1: If I was Romney, by the way, I would say, look, make me Secretary of State, and I promise to humiliate myself in some way. But I wouldn't pass it, you know, I wouldn't put it past Trump to put Romney through some sort of degrading dance and then drop him for Giuliani.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I think that is quite possible. And that would be very Trumpian.
1: One, one thing which has not reached, which has received a lot of attention, but could still receive more is just simply how cruel and sadistic Trump is. There, I, I've read articles summarizing just the, the vicious things he's done to people for no other reason than the pleasure he gets from making them suffer. So I really wouldn't put it past him.
0: So you are a psychologist who must at least sometimes function by the the creed that one can't diagnose from afar. Have you ever done any clinical work, or you just pure, you're purely research?
1: I'm purely research. I'm not even a member of the American Psychological Association. I'm happy diagnosing him. I mean, <laughs> he's he's plainly a narcissist. Yeah. Um. I'm not sure if he's a, a, a if he's a psychopath. I don't. I. I think in general, um, people, particularly psychologists, are too are too prone to apply sort of clinical designations to things which are just more moral flaws. Right. He's. He's. He's not. He's. He's narcissistic. He's. He's cruel. He's self-aggrandizing. He's paradoxically seems to be a good father to his children, showing that people are complicated. But um. But he's. I've never seen a worse person. In a position of so much power, and I have to say, and I, I'm—I no doubt you have complicated views about Obama, but one thing I—Obama—I think has consistently struck me, personally, as an admirable person. Yeah. As somebody yeah. who treats people with respect, who carries himself with dignity, who—who who has a grace and intellectual curiosity and charm, regardless of what one thinks of his policy, he—he he, you know he really uh, treated the office with respect, and it's easy to admire him. For that, and Trump is his exact opposite.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally concur there. And and the thing about Trump is that, again, this is what's so bewildering to me is that so many people don't see this. I mean, having argued this really ad nauseum, right? I've spent hours on my podcast. I've been on other people's podcasts. I've just run the guy down endlessly, and obviously, there are many people who think that this is purely a matter of my articulating my own political biases, right? And it just absolutely isn't. If almost anyone else, obviously, they're, they're religious maniacs in the Republican Party who I would have a different argument against. But, you know, if Michael Bloomberg or somebody ran as a Republican against Clinton, right, I would have voted Republican in a, in a heartbeat, right? Uh-huh. Just, like, I've, I've got absolutely no partisan commitment to the Democrats apart from the fact that they generally articulate my values or have in the past better than republicans and that's largely a matter of the degree to which republican party has for my entire lifetime been captured by fundamentalist christianity that's the problem there but with trump it is so obvious that he's a con man without an ethical or intellectual core and that's such a terrible thing to put in charge of the country Literally, he has said and done a hundred things, at least, that should have been disqualifying. But if you just take only one, if you take Trump University, right? Yes. Had you perpetrated Trump University, you know, that would be the end of your career, right? And for good reason. I wouldn't have you on my podcast, right? If you you were the sort of person who would bilk needy people out of tens of thousands of dollars and then And then use every trick in the book to hang on to their money and, you know, publicly celebrate it as a great victory. I mean, it's like that should destroy a person, right? And that's arguably not even in the top 10 of the things that make him a liability as as president.
1: I was talking to my younger son on the phone and he was making fun of me for all my political predictions that have gone wrong mm. from the ultimate the obvious victory of Jeb Bush to the success of Marco Rubio and to the many, many times I said about Trump, well, lad, now he's toast. And I, I remember the first time was when he mocked John McCain for being a prisoner, <laughs> right, right. for being a prisoner of war. Yeah.
0: And I'm laughing as I
1: say this because... I mean,
0: how did the military get behind him? He so he himself as much of a draft dodger as you can be, right? Someone who did not fight, and now he is condemning a an objective war hero for having been captured and tortured, and yet the military got behind him. I mean, that's yep. what's so amazing about this outcome.
1: It's all amazing. Uh, as, you know, I had an election party at my house, which turned out not to be much of a party, no. and then and i you know following things on twitter and as things were going horribly all of a sudden somebody tweeted this is the the worst black mirror episode ever yeah and, sure. and, and 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 that's what i feel like i'm living in
0: yeah it does feel that way well you and so you and i in our first podcast i think i think it was the first probably a little more than a year ago confidently expressed that we would never be talking about trump again yes <laughs> It's good that we're not in that business.
1: We'll continue to have conversations through his third and fourth terms. It's, just, it's no doubt.
0: This is like one of those moments where you understand that we probably live in a multiverse with, with parallel universes living out almost identical lifelines. But, you know, I just did not think we were in the universe where Trump was going to be president. I was yep. genuinely surprised.
1: Yep. It really is like living in a dystopian science fiction movie. And, and it's just the beginning.
0: Hopefully those who predict that he will be so unprincipled as to actually be a good president will be right. I think that's what we have to take refuge yep. in.
1: That's that's an optimistic thought to end on.
0: Well listen, Paul, it's once again great to have you on the podcast. And in closing, please in addition to my reminding everyone to get your book, Against Empathy, that is now available and I will link to it on my blog and it is everywhere books are sold and it's obviously on Amazon, which is increasingly the easiest way to get a book tell people where they can find you what's your twitter address
1: paul bloom at yale
0: okay you are the third time guest i'm sure there will be a fourth so until next time it was really a pleasure
1: it was a total pleasure sam i'm super grateful thank you
0: if you find this podcast valuable there are many ways you can support it you can review it on itunes or stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it you can share it on social media with your friends you can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advance tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.